Good morning, everyone, on this beautiful day. I kind of have two categories of days now. There's days that work can get done at the building, and there's days that work can't get done at the building. And so this is kind of one of those days when it's raining and just kind of slows everything down out there. But y'all just keep praying that God will get us in that building when he's ready for us to be in that building. And, you know, I, I can't quite figure out what all's going on. Maybe that building's going to turn into an ark, you know, and start floating. And there's some plan behind that. I don't know. Uh, some coming judgment, but we'll just see. But no, we are um, excited about what God's doing, but even more than just excited about the material way that God's blessed us with the building, we're excited about the vision that God's given us as a church for this year. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. If you're with us this morning, you're here a little bit different sermon than normal because we're going to take part of the message today just to kind of cast a vision for what God's laid on our heart this year, but before we get to that part, I do want to give a scriptural basis for that. So today, the title of our message is Real Religion. Um, from time to time, the church needs to reclaim things. There's, I think the church needs to reclaim the rainbow, for example. Okay? The rainbow has been kind of identified with other groups, and the church needs to reclaim the rainbow because the rainbow belongs to God. The rainbow belongs to God's covenant promises. Um, the church sometimes needs to reclaim things like the arts. You look back in history and you look at some of the famous artistic, uh, the paintings and statues. They were all, they were biblical fi- figures, biblical images. And we've kind of given up the arts to the secular world. And, and, and the church needs to be willing to reclaim things sometimes. And, and sometimes we need to reclaim words. And one of those words is the word religion. The word religion. Um, Y'all have all heard it said, and I've said it, um, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Okay, I mean, has everyone heard that? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's, it's a, it just kind of rolls off our tongue, it sounds really cool, but, you know, it's really only, only somewhat true. It's only partially true because we think about what the word religion means. It means your external actions, your observances, disciplines, um, things you do that are associated with your beliefs. So it's your external actions. And, and sometimes I think we get so focused on the internal, and that is where our relationship with God begins in the heart. We get so focused on the internal that we just think we can uh, forget about the external. I think by all means, we do have to have a relationship, obviously. There's, we can't have the type of actions and, and observances and disciplines that God wants us to have without uh, a relationship with Christ, which is totally true. I love that song we just sang. That's what we stand on. We stand on the solid rock of Christ. One of my favorite images in all of Scripture is in that song from John chapter 10 where, where God tells us, Jesus tells us that no one can snatch us from his hand. No one can snatch us from his hand. That's our security. That's our hope is that Christ has us. And so that's a heart thing. But you know what? It doesn't mean that God's people will cease to act to cease to do things. It doesn't mean God's people will cease to exhibit external, observable disciplines and practices that result from a relationship that is real. Okay, God's people will still do things that reflect that relationship. Now, there's two types of religion. There's empty, fake, false religion, which is ritual without relationship. And then there's pure, undefiled, real religion which is practices we do that's driven by the relationship. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. So perhaps we can add to that saying that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and the relationships make, that relationship makes us practice real religion. So real religion is the title of our passage today, and I want to share with us and lay out a vision for our church to practice real religion in 2010. So where do we see real religion in the Bible. How do we practice real religion? I want us to go to James chapter 1, verse 25. We're going to just preach from this one verse today. James chapter 1, verse 27. I'm sorry. And if y'all can get my clicker working back there for me. James 1, 27. There we go. So turn to that if you would. And um, you can read it, follow along on the screen if you would like. James chapter 1, verse 27. The Word of God says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained 
from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we continue in the message and we think about the things that you're stirring up here in Harbin's and the, the vision that you're putting before us and the plans that you're um, putting on our heart to put into place, God, I pray that we would do everything honoring and for your glory and not just something because we want to do it, not just something that, 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 that makes us excited, but instead, Lord, that we would seek for you to be excited, for you to be uh, filled with glory and honor by the things we do this year. God, I pray that um, this morning as we listen to this message that uh, you'd help us to see beyond just um, applying it in a very general way, but help us to individually. Lord, I ask that you break through each one of our individual hard-heartedness to be willing to put this into practice individually in our own families and also corporately as a church. So God, this morning I ask that you, um, that you would just allow your word to do battle in our hearts, speak to us, break down any strongholds we might have. And God, I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Religion. Okay, as I said earlier, it's that word, the word here in this passage, the word religion in James 1.27 uh, in the Greek actually means practices, observances, disciplines, okay, that demonstrate one's devotion. Um, it, it always refers to external things. In Josephus, using the exact same word in his history, he wrote, uh, he wrote this, this, this word, he used this word to describe what the Jews did in the temple, to, to describe their rituals and their practices. And so these are observable practices in our life, religion, observable practices in our life that demonstrate our devotion to Christ. You can notice people's devotion by what they do, by how they spend their time, uh, by the words they speak. That's, that's how you can tell what people are devoted to, right? So, I mean, if you're talking to someone and all they talk about is Star Wars, or they take, you know, you know, a lot of times out of their year to go to the Star Wars convention over and wherever, and that's what they spend their time doing, that's something they're devoted to. Their actions reflect that. Uh, if you talk to someone and and uh, all they want to talk about is politics all the time, and that's the only thing they talk about. You know, they're devoted to, to politics. And so our actions reflect what we're devoted to. Now, there are some things that a true believer in Christ should be doing, should be some actions that he or she should be carrying out. And uh, like I said earlier, sometimes we, we think about... Um, Christianity is more of a, of a heart thing. We don't think about it being good deeds. But Christianity is about actions. It is about doing. It is about deeds. It is about good works. Those things are not what make us Christians, but they are the marks that prove that we're Christians. Matter of fact, the context of this passage is to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And it's very easy just to be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. But we've been created to be doers. According to Ephesians 2.10 we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Okay, in John 15, 4, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. So, so Christianity is about doing. It is about deeds that reflect a relationship with Christ. Matter of fact, that's exactly what Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is all about. Jesus says to me, similar passage that we read, that I just read a minute ago, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Christianity is about doing, but it's about doing it in the context of a relationship. It's about having true fruit that comes from a relationship with Christ. Titus 1.6 says that they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So there are some people that claim to know Jesus, but they deny Him by the things they do. 
And we want to be people, and we want to be a church that doesn't deny Christ by the things we do, but instead we prove that we belong to Christ, and we want to have real fruit. So, um, thinking about fruit, does anybody like fruit in here? Ross, all right, can you catch this apple? All right. Whoa, good catch. But you dropped your Bible. Sorry. Okay. You like it? Oh, you love fruit. Here, hold on to that apple for me. All right. Who loves bananas? Oh, you Noah, let's see here. Ooh, all right. Cindy, hang on to that banana for me right there. Preston, you can have that banana. All right, why don't y'all just take a bite of that fruit and tell me if it's good. All right. Oh, you want something? Here you go. Here's an apple. Can you catch it? Oh, oh sorry. Bruise on that one. All right, just take a, take a bite of that fruit and tell me if it tastes good. All right. Ross, is it good? All right. Good, good. Uh, Preston, how's yours? Good? Yummy? All right. All right. Uh, how's yours, uh, uh, Jenna? What? Go ahead. Give it a shot. It's terrible. How about yours, Miss Cindy? How's yours? No? It doesn't feel real to me. It, do, it, it doesn't feel real to you. All right. All right, now, now when I said, does anyone love fruit, you guys all raised your hands. It looks real, doesn't it? Okay, y'all were excited, and I, I think you were actually genuinely excited about, I was allowing the adults to participate in the illustration, and Cindy's like, hey, you're throwing apples over there, I'll take a banana. And, really and she really loves bananas. Okay, and she was very disappointed when the fruit didn't turn out to be real. Okay, it, 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 she was looking forward to, she enjoys real fruit. And she enjoys real bananas. And this thing looks real, and it got her really excited. Just looking at this thing, she got jazzed about it. But when she examined it and saw that it wasn't real, it was a terrible disappointment to her. Okay? And that's the way we are as believers. We're either going to have real fruit that comes from a real relationship, or we're going to have fake fruit. And it may look real. And I believe the church in this day and age, unfortunately... The church in this day and age is walking around with a lot of believers sitting in the pews that look like the real thing. And they may do lots of Christian things. But let me tell you, just because you do things doesn't necessarily mean you have a relationship. Because you know what? Sticking a fish on the back of the car doesn't make you a fisherman for Christ. And doing the things that, that, that everyone considers to be Christian things doesn't necessarily make you a believer in Christ. What does? It's, it's whether or not your fruit. Cindy got the rest of the banana. Thank you, Preston. See, that's fruit. Look, you're sharing with others in need. Thank you, Preston. That, that, was just, that was really nice. The proof of our Christianity will be in what is it that we're doing? Are we just going through rituals that make us feel good about ourselves? Not that you can't put a fish on the back of your car. Put a fish on the back of your car. That's fine. Not that you can't do some of the rituals we do as Christians. The question is, is there something beyond that that's real, that your relationship with Christ, you do those things because you love Christ, and, and you're doing things to practice real religion like God calls us to practice, and that is to meet the needs of those who are hurting, those who are destitute religious people are people that do things but real religious people are people that do things because they love God and they can't help but love others real religion is active compassion real religion is active compassion so there's the first point in your notes the Bible says here that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction pure and undefiled that's where I get real from pure and undefiled, okay? Uh, just, just synonyms there. Nothing, nothing special about why, why James uses two words here. He's just trying to make a point. Religion that's pure and undefiled, that's real, is to do these things. It's to visit. James here uses this word visit, and by doing so, he dismisses long-distance ministry by proxy, which is what we're most comfortable with, aren't we? We're most comfortable with just doing ministry from a distance, that's why Southern Baptists are really good at gathering funds to do missions. But some, and actually, we send a lot of missionaries too. But you know what? We gather funds a lot better than we do actually sending missionaries out. We need more missionaries here in the United States, internationally. Because it's much easier just to do ministry by proxy, kind of distantly. 
I'll tell you one of the ways we all do it, we're all guilty of this, is just to simply say, you know, I'll be praying for you. And maybe you do pray for them, but, but that's safe. It's very safe just to, from a distance say, I'll be, I'll be praying for you. It's much more difficult to get your hands dirty in their life and to get involved and go beyond prayer. They certainly need prayer, but going beyond prayer and asking what you can physically do to help meet needs, that's difficult. We all fail in that area. I fail in that area because it's so easy and so tempting just to say, man, I'm just going to keep my hands clean here in this situation. I don't want to get involved in that. And so I'll just be praying for you. And so the Bible here, James says, no, this word here, visit, doesn't give us the freedom to that, to do that. It doesn't give us the freedom just to, to be this sort of disconnected type of relationship with people. The word here in the Greek actually is related to the word episkopos, which is the word for overseer. So it's related to the word that we use for overseer, elder, um, that's, that's synonymous with elder, who's someone who oversees the church. And so the, the image here that, that James is giving us with to visit someone is to, to look after them and to look out for them. So if, if, if James is telling us, that, he says, look out for, look after the orphans and the widows in your church. It's not just about throwing some money at the situation. It's getting involved and saying, hey, I'm going to look out for this person. When you look out for someone, you're going to be there. You're going to stand with them. You're going to help protect them. And that's the image here that James wants us to have, to look out for, to protect, to provide for, to defend. It means to become personally involved with. True, pure, undefiled, real religion is personal contact with the world's sorrows. Let me say that again. True, pure, undefiled, real religion is personal contact with the world's sorrows. And it's also a habitual practice because the, the verb tense here, gives us the, the um, hint here that this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not just, hey, I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip. I got my hands dirty helping out the world's sorrows for two weeks. Now I'm going to come back to my comfortable life. It's a habitual practice. I'm going to keep being involved in people's lives, people who are in need. And so that's the image here, that we're going to be continually looking for ways to serve people. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle Okay, the word to visit was also used by Jesus in Matthew 25 when he gives this parable. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So it's that same word again. You looked after me, is what Jesus is saying. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Same word again. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to what, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. That's real religion. But this word visit, to help us really understand what it means for us to visit people in their affliction, we need to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 68. And this is a passage where Zechariah... Remember Zechariah? He's John the Baptist's father. So John the Baptist's father, they come, they announce, the angel comes and announces, hey, you're going to have, a, Elizabeth is going to have a child in her old age. He doesn't believe it. Angel says, well, because you didn't believe, you're not going to be able to speak. He can't speak. Baby's born. He said, they say, hey, we're going to name him after, you know, your, the father's family or something. He says, no, the name is John. As soon as he writes the name John on the, on the tablet and says his name is John, his mouth opens up, and then we read that he prophesies. And this is what he prophesies about John the Baptist and, and about Jesus coming. And this is what um, Zechariah says in Luke 1, 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Same word. So when we think about what we're called to do for orphans, for widows, for all those who are in need, who are afflicted, Jesus didn't just do ministry by proxy. Jesus came all the way down, as Philippians chapter 2 teaches us. He came all the way down to the lowest rung in society, which is a slave. To the lowest rung in society to minister to all, to those who had fallen all the way to the lowest rung in society. And that's what Jesus did. That's what we're to do. We're never to be too good to minister to the orphans, or the widows, or the homeless man on the corner, 
or the person in our church who's struggling with this sin that makes us uncomfortable, or the person in our church that we just don't get, or whatever. We don't ever have an excuse not to be involved in other people's lives and to minister to them, because to visit them means to do what Jesus has called us to do, and that is to go all the way down to where it's dirty and where people are hurting and be willing to love everybody. We are to visit those in affliction as a direct direct result of the fact that God, through Christ, has visited us in our affliction, our affliction of sin and death. God is not distant and unknowable. No, he came, he visited, he got his hands dirty to rescue us. We are called to do the same, to get our hands dirty and to rescue those in distress. We are called to get directly involved in the lives of the hurting. In this case, the hurting can be summed up in two groups. The Bible says here to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. God has always had a heart for orphans and widows. And these two groups can rightly sum up all those who are in distress because these are the most helpless and the most defenseless, especially back in ancient cultures. Widows and orphans were the most helpless and the most defenseless. So I don't want us to make a false conclusion from this passage that, that real religion is only to, 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 to minister to those two groups. There's lots of hurts and needs in this church, but in this world. But I also believe that there are special needs for orphans and widows that God calls his people to take care of. And so in this passage here, we see James telling us to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You've read the, you heard the passage Demer read earlier. And all throughout the, the Old Testament law, for example, in Deuteronomy 27, 19, God says, Cursed be anyone who prevents the justice to the alien, to the fatherless, and to the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. This is God trying to get his people to turn back to him. This is what he says. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one, one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I give you, you gave of old to your fathers forever. God has always had a heart for widows and for orphans. Widows have experienced the absence of a father. And, and the, I mean, orphans have experienced the absence of a father. And the widows are experiencing the absence of a husband. These two groups also represent something even deeper. The gospel. The gospel work of Jesus in our lives. For we, by our own sin and our own selfishness, were lost and helpless. Our spiritual birth father is Satan. Because we have all been born into sin and into utter depravity, we are helpless to get out of it afflicted in the worst sense of the word, and God, by his glorious grace, has visited us and rescued us. He has adopted us into his own household. Romans eight fourteen says, For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we, by our own sin and selfishness, were in love with this world. We loved this world and all it had to offer. We lusted after it. We whored after it. But it was not a husband to us. Instead, we were less husbandless, defenseless, and unloved. But God took us, cleaned us, dressed us in bridal gowns, and declared us his for all eternity. And never again unloved, never again forsaken, we belong to him. Widows and orphans represent, ministry to widows and orphans represent the gospel. So the care of orphans and widows is the gospel in action. So in 2010, I challenge us to be a church that practices real religion. But that's only part of real religion. Real, real, religion. real religion is active compassion, but without worldly compromise. Real religion is active compassion without worldly compromise. Religion, real religion is about our conduct, which is compassion, doing things that are compassionate, but it's also about our character and not compromising to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is Romans 12, 2. So the Bible here says we're to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word keep here, the verb here, is a present active infinitive, meaning it's a continual action. So it basically means to keep on keeping. So we're to keep on keeping oneself unstained from the world. That means it's work. We've got to keep on working to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Unstained here means spotless. It's the word used of Jesus as being the lamb without blemish or spot in 1 Peter 1, 19. It's purity in our lifestyle. Now, it's not sinless perfection. Sinless perfection cannot be attained. Yet the genuine Christian is not happy when he falls 
fails to be the person that God wants him to be. The genuine believer is unhappy with his sin. It's not our perfection that proves our salvation. Let me say that again. It's not our perfection that proves our salvation, but rather our hating our imperfection that proves our salvation. Okay, it's not that, we have, that we're perfect. So when we talk about being unstained from the world, none of us can perfectly do that. But you know what? We should want that. We should hate our sin. That's real religion. To keep oneself unstained is to strive by God's power and by God's help not to sin because we hate sin. We don't want to sin because we hate sin. It's not because we hate the consequences. It's not because we hate the the dilemmas it puts it in. It's because we hate sin because it's an offense to God. We hate it, and therefore we strive not to do it. That's keeping oneself unstained from the world. So the real religion, I love the imagery here in this passage. Real religion is getting our hands dirty with orphans and widows while remaining unstained. It's getting our hands dirty in the world with people who are in need while remaining clean and unstained. And that's the picture here that James is getting, giving us, and it's exactly what Christ did for us. Real religion is about relationships, but it's also about doing, about action, about a real relationship that results in real deeds and that show the genuineness of the relationship. So the question is, how do we practice real religion at Harbin's in 2010. Well, I want to share some things with you here over the next few minutes. But first, I've asked Deemer to speak because I believe the heart of this passage and the heart of what God's doing in this church right now, he's stirring things up. I I love watching God at work. I really do. Because when we planted Harbin's, I couldn't have imagined the things he's doing now and the directions he's leading us and the things he's stirring up. God has his own plans. And it's great because his plans are so much better than my plans were. And so I, I rejoice in what he's doing. And so I want Deemer to share with us uh, kind of what God's put on his heart for years now, his family's heart, about adoption. Because that's certainly one of the centerpieces of what we're going to be talking about this year, adoption. So Deemer, come on up and speak with us for a little bit, and then I'll come back up. You got a two for this morning, two preachers. I'll be brief. Uh, Steve asked me to share a little bit about um, my and Dana's adoption journey. Um, Most of you know, if not all of you, that Dana and I are in the process of adopting a child from Ethiopia. And, uh, And really our adoption journey began many, many years ago. And our adoption journey began... Uh, like many couples, adoption journey does. Uh, we initially had difficulty having children biologically, and uh, it was at that point where God began to um, uh, prompt our heart to consider adoption, to think about adoption, and uh, and, and we began to uh, began to look into that. Um, initially, for me, adoption was mainly a good alternative of having our first child. Um, I didn't realize how huge and significant adoption was, orphan care ministry was at that point. At that point, it was simply a means to an end. We couldn't have children biologically. There's kids that we can adopt. We'll do that, and that's how we'll start our family. And that was it at that, at that point in my life. Uh, we ended up having Ethan shortly after we began thinking about adoption, and so that shut the door at that time uh, for adoption. And not too long after that, Ella came along, which was a shock to us, and uh, and that shut the door even harder at that time for adoption. And shortly after Ella was born, we were very satisfied with just two children. That was it. We were good. We're all set. No, 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 no thoughts about more or anything, no desire for more. Uh, certainly not in my life or in my heart, at least. I won't speak for Dana, but certainly for me. But God began, I believe, to take Dana and I on a, on a journey of, of, of four different stages that I think expanded our hearts more and more in regards to adoption and coming to the conclusion that it was more than just about family expansion, but that that God, through adoption, is doing something much bigger than that. And the heart change, number one, 
uh, and this has to happen before anything else happens, is that God began to cultivate in my life and in Dana's life, our hearts, a desire to start having more children. He gave us an increased desire for more children and an increased love for children. You know, there's no set minimum or maximum amount of children that a Christian couple should have. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't set limits uh, on that or maximums on that for that matter. Uh, However, um, I began to grow very concerned about the attitude that the culture has towards children that our culture has towards children. And I think you know what I mean. Children are a nuisance. Children get in the way. I've got things I want to do with my life. I've got dreams. I've got plans. I've got goals. I've got, I, I've got a certain amount of money that I need to have, all of these sorts of things uh, that, that I want to achieve, a certain kind of home and all these things, and children just get in the way of that. One child's great, two, all right, you know, that's stretching a limit a little bit, but I can handle two. But, you know, I don't know if I can just do more than that because it's going to get in the way of the American dream. And, that, and that, not everybody thinks that. Maybe you've never thought that or struggled with that, but that's what the culture at large is teaching us now about children. And I began to get very concerned about that. And I began to get concerned with how the culture has apparently crept into the church as well as I have seen Christians buying into this attitude that, that children are just a burden and not a blessing. Now, I've, I've seen it. I've seen Christians espouse that kind of philosophy. Well, I began to realize that the culture was wrong and that the Bible is right and that children are wonderful and that children are a blessing. And I began, and Dana began, to get jealous of large families. I began to get jealous when when I saw a, a, a dad surrounded by a whole bunch of little ones, and they were his. I began to get jealous of, of people who maybe started growing their family at a younger stage of life than I did. And, and, and so my heart began to change in that. And, I, and more and more I began to love being a father. I love seeing my kids grow up and go through these different stages of life and explore new things and learn and grow. And, you know, uh, Ethan was six and now he's seven and I will never see six again with him. Ella is five. She was four. Four was great, but I'll never see it again. It's gone. And I was like, I want to experience those things again more with more kids. And more and more, I also began to love the scary and awesome privilege of my responsibility as a dad to image the fatherhood of God. Dads, that's your job. Image the father. And that's so weighty on me, but it's such an incredible privilege to be able to do that and to learn in my life how to show things about the fatherhood of God through how I'm interacting with my kids. And many times I blow it, but it's still my job and my responsibility. And so Dane and I began thinking of adoption once more. But but still for me, at that phase, adoption was still mostly a means to an end of growing my family, and that was pretty much it. I think Dana was a bit ahead of me as far as having some other reasons to adopt, and it took me a little bit longer to catch up with that, and that leads to heart change number two. And heart change number two in my life, in Dana's life, an increased awareness and concern for the orphan care crisis. And Dana, being so compassionate and, and, and having such a big heart for those in need, was way ahead of me on this one. And she began to get deeply concerned about orphans all over the world that are growing up in orphanages with no one to care for them and love them one-on-one, no, no mom and no dad. And I, too, then began, God used her heart to affect my heart, and I, too, began to have an increased awareness and concern and a growing outrage over the orphan care crisis you know, Steve was like, Deemer, can you talk a little bit about your adoption journey and maybe give, give out some statistics and things like that? Only, there's only one statistic that matters. There's a lots of statistics on adoption that you, that you can get, and I can help you get them. But if you only have one statistic, have this one. 143 million orphans worldwide, globally. And that number has haunted me ever since I've heard it. And in some of these orphanages where the kids are growing up, some of these places are hellish. 
lacking proper medical care, lacking proper nutrition, most importantly, lacking love. And even in the best of orphanages, we know it's not optimal for a child to grow up in that situation. And I began to realize that Satan hates children. And that Satan is waging war on children. He's waging that war in many ways. He's waging it through abortion, which Steve talked about last week. Millions and millions being destroyed even before they can get out of the womb. He's waging war through the orphan care crisis as well. He's waging this war through irresponsible dads who have children and then who just move on and not care about them. Why? Why is Satan waging war on children? Well, there's so many different reasons. Satan hates everybody. He hates life. I think he has a special hatred for kids. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he uses these little children as a, as a picture of how we are supposed to be to enter the kingdom of God, that childlike faith. I think children remind Satan of the gospel. Children remind Satan of childlike faith. He hates that. I also believe that Satan is always concerned with trying to stamp out the next generation that might rise up for the kingdom of God. Someone has to rescue these children, and it shouldn't be the government. It should be the church. That became my conviction. Led to heart change number three. As God continued to expand our hearts and open our minds, heart change number three, I began to realize there are strategic, kingdom-oriented reasons for Christians to have larger families and to be open to children. Now, I'm speaking generally. There may be some reasons why a couple is not supposed to have any children. I understand that. God calls a missionary to go to Afghanistan and preach to the Taliban. It may be hard to do that if you're toting around a six-month-old. I understand that. There, there are reasons why, and I don't know all the reasons why, so I'm not putting a guilt trip on any, trying to put a guilt trip on anybody in regards to a specific number of children. However, I think there are some reasons why Christians need to be more open to children. Through biological growth of families and through adoption as well. Fat, one of the fastest growing religions in the world, if not the fastest, is Islam. Is Islam the fastest? Islam's the fastest. Main reason why is not through conversion. Main reason why is because of large families. They're not anti-child. They treasure and cherish large families. It's important to them. And I began to wonder what, what could happen to the global shape uh, of, of religious belief worldwide if Christians had as much or more passion for children and training children, and getting involved in their lives as Muslims do. There are strategic kingdom of God reasons for children to have large families. Think of it in this country where you have much of the mainstream secular culture, generally speaking, anti-child. And you have the secular culture maybe having one or two children. You've got many more and more Christians rising up and having more and more and more children. Not all of them are going to become Christians, but many of them will. That gives us a tactical advantage. <laughs> over time, over a couple of generations, you think about the nation could be changed that way. I think about the creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, why did he say this? Did he say it just because the world was so big and there was only two people and we need some more people to fill up this earth? No, there was more reasons why he wanted humans to fill the earth. Humans are made in the image of God. As humans are spreading out worldwide, what's happening? The earth is being filled with the glory of God, which is always number one on God's agenda, to glorify himself. And, of course, that creation mandate was rephrased, the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go, go worldwide, tell people about me, tell people about the gospel, make disciples. 
God is still interested in filling the earth with his glory, and that happens more and more as God saves people and rescues people and takes the marred, sinful, tainted image of God that is in humans and begins to repair that image so that Christians reflect that more and more over time. And as, as the gospel increases and as, as the number of Christians increase, you see the world being filled with the glory of God. 143 million orphans. I love to see all of them adopted by Christians. I would love that. Now, not every single child in a Christian home will come to Christ. There's no guarantees on that. We know that. But many of them will believe. Many of them will. You take 143 million orphans, say only, they're adopted by Christians, say only half of them believe. That's 71.5 million new believers. Or let's be more pessimistic. Let's say just a fourth of them believe. The road is narrow, right? 35.5 million believers. 35.5 million evangelists. 35.5 million people influencing culture and spreading the gospel. This could be very huge, guys. Heart change number four. biggest reason to adopt. And God really hammered this into me and my wife's head maybe about a year and a half ago or so. Biggest reason to adopt. Not because I want more kids and this is a means of doing it. Biggest reason to adopt. Not simply due to pragmatic reasons. There are children that need help, so we're going to to help them. Non-believers do that. Angelina Jolie and Madonna do that. They see kids in need and they Adopt. There's a bigger reason to adopt. That God may be magnified and glorified. And this happens regardless of whether your adopted children ever come to Christ or not. And Dane and I began to experience a major theological shift in regards to adoption and theological foundations in regards to adoption. The main reason why we are adopting is because we were adopted. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And Steve already has shared a little bit about how adoption images and pictures the gospel. And so I won't get into all that. But, but I, I, the gospel is all about Adoption. And when you adopt, what are you doing? You are imaging what God the Father does. You are showing the world something about God the Father. And I want to use adoption as a platform to preaching the gospel. I just don't want to use adoption because I want more kids in my family. I want to use it as a platform to preach the gospel. I want to preach the gospel with my lips. But I also want my adoption of a boy or a girl to be a parable of that gospel story. And so when people come up to me and say, well, why are you doing this? Then I can say, I'm doing this because I was adopted. Because God the Father took me and chose me and adopted me and loved me. That's why I want to do it. All those reasons, of course. But number one to glorify God and to show what God is always doing in people's lives, changing them and choosing them and rescuing them. And um, that's pretty much all I have to say. Thank you for letting me share, which turned into a sermon. Um, But uh, we're going to show that video. Do we have time for the video? Do you want to? Sure. That? Okay. We're going to show a video about uh, that's uh, produced by a ministry that we're going to be partnering with this uh, this year called Life Song um, in regards to adoption.
I do want to just share some things that God's put in our heart for this year, for ministry focuses this year. And one of them is a partnership with Lifesong. And I'm going to bring up the next slide that was after the, the two points that are there, guys. Lifesong um, is, is an organization. Let's see if they can bring it up there for us. I love their uh, mission statement, bringing joy and purpose to orphans. And really, there's two ways we're going to um, work with Lifeson this year. Uh, in the back there, you may have already seen as you came in a, um, a display board that has information about Lifesong on it. So I'm not going to go over all the information that's on there. But one of the things we'll be doing this year is that we're going to be uh, working with them uh, starting an adoption fund. Actually, we've already started the adoption fund. And, um, you know, the Bible says we're all to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. But not everybody's called to adopt. I think it would be a mistake to say that everybody has to adopt. Now I hope and pray that as many people as possible will be called to adopt. But just as Deemer said, there's different circumstances, different ways God leads people in their life. may not be called to adopt right now, but we're all called to visit orphans and widows in distress. And so one of the ways we can do that is to provide an adoption fund uh, for families who are interested in adopting in our church is to be used for the purpose of helping Harbin's members that are in the process of adopting help pay their adoption fees. Now I'm not going to go into all the details of how it works right now, but there's a sheet in the back. If you don't, or maybe it's in the back there, it looks like this that has information that you can read on there about how the adoption fund works. But I also want to share with you a little bit about uh, another partnership we're doing with Lifesong. We're partnering with them uh, to help really come alongside and to sponsor and to help be uh, a church that supports an, an orphanage in Liberia. This is the um, Master's Home of Champions. It's run by Bishop Emmanuel and Ramona Jones. And uh, uh, as you can see there, they also have the kids are all in school uniforms in that picture. There's also a school associated with the orphanage there. And one of the things we're going to be doing this year is partnering with them. However we can, we want to try to partner with them financially, certainly through prayer, even some possible mission trips. Uh, next week, a couple's coming to speak to us that works with Lifesong named Keith and Kay Knapp. And uh, so I want you to be here next week to hear them speak about Lifesong, to speak about the orphanage, to tell us what's going on in Liberia. Uh, Liberia just recently finished a 14-year-long civil war that left half a million Orphans in the country. Okay? 14 years of civil war. The orphan crisis is huge in Liberia, as it is in a lot of places around the world, as you've been seeing in Haiti. And so, um, one of the things, they just need partnership with, with really simple things, like things that we take for granted, like water. They're right now, they're uh, having to dig a new well, and uh, I received an email, I know Deemer and Dana did as well, that's past um, week from Keith and Kay talking about how uh, Emmanuel was going to donate his salary to dig a new well this last month. And so the cost of the well was $2,780. Well, Lifesong decided to go ahead and kick in $2,000 to help with the well, leaving $780. I challenge us this day, this day, not to let that well be, have to be taken out of Emmanuel's pocket. I challenge us today, let's start this partnership right now. I think before we walk out of here today, we can have $780 to finish the well for the children in Liberia. And that's the type of partnership we're going to be doing. When a need comes up, they needed a generator. What was it, last month? They needed a generator. They needed it to be fixed. There's different things that come up, and we want to be one of not just one church, but several churches that come alongside and help them out. You say, well, we're such a small church. We've got so many needs of our own. Well, tell you what, our needs pale in comparison to the needs of these children over there in Liberia. And you know what? This is a principle. It's a principle personally, with your own personal finances. It's a principle in the church as well. You give, you give sacrificially, you give in abundance, and God will take care of you and bless you in unexpected ways. But you give. You give and you give and you give till it hurts. Okay, and, and you, you don't believe me? Take up God's challenge. God tells you to give and see what he'll do. Give until it hurts and see what God does to take care 
of your needs. So that's one of our partnerships for this year. Yeah, next week, Keith and Kay are coming. Another partnership, okay, that's kind of an international, global uh, uh, initiative for our church. But we're also going to be partnering this year with the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. Their theme or their kind of their vision statement there is putting the pieces together. And that's really what they're all about. These are kids that come from fragmented homes. The Georgia Baptist Children's Home is really uh, partnered as part of the, the uh, foster care system here in Georgia. And so children are put into these cottages there at the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, campus and several cottages. And each cottage houses uh, 8 to 12 boys or girls. And so there's parents at these cottages. The one we're partnering with is the Willett Cottage. And the parents are Mike and, um, and Dana Gibson. There's, a, there's an old picture of the, of the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. I find it very interesting. It was begun in the 1860s after our Civil War left hundreds of thousands of, well, if tens of thousands of orphans, especially in the South. And it was begun after our Civil War, and it continues to this day. And so there's ways to partner with this uh, cottage. Willett Cottage is the name of our cottage. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a picture of some of the boys that are in the cottage right now that we're going to be ministering to. Um, we're going to be helping them however we can. Sometimes it's just coming down there and helping paint. It's coming down there and helping fix the trim. She said the trim in the windows is falling off, so the panes are falling out. We need someone that just has handyman work to come down. They have the materials. They just need people that can swing hammers and fix things. And so going down there, doing things like that, also looking for ways that we can help them financially. One thing she mentioned, you saw the box in the back, and the Dana sent out an email. They need snacks because their budget's been cut. All they can buy for the kids is the essentials. Because the economy's taking a downturn, they had to cut their grocery budget for these kids at the, at the Georgia Baptist Children's Home so they don't get snacks. So by all means, our kids gorge themselves on snacks. Let's buy some snacks and take it to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home when we get a chance. As a matter of fact, we will have a chance. Uh, coming up February 6th, we're going to have a vision trip to go down to Willett Cottage, meet the boys, meet Mike and Dana, and uh, get to know, see what the cottage is like and get to know kind of the vision of the ministry there. And so that's February 6th. That's a Saturday at 2 p.m., so anybody who wants to go, just let me know, and we'll take a big old we'll carpool down there. It's on the south side of Atlanta, so it does take about an hour or so to get there from here. Now another partnership we're going to be involved in this year is with the Pregnancy Resource Center. There's the mission statement for the Pregnancy Resource Center, providing men and women of all ages with truth that can empower them to make godly life choices regarding faith, sanctity of life, marriage, and sexual purity. And coming up... Uh, this next week, this Tuesday at 11 o'clock, we're going to take a tour of the Pregnancy Resource Center with the director, Bobby Kern, and Heather's going to head up that trip to the Pregnancy Resource Center. If you're interested in going, just get with her. I think Dana might be going as well. Um, and we'd just like to go there and find out how we can partner with the Pregnancy Resource Center, certainly through prayer, but also looking for ways that we can minister to these mothers who come. It's not a trip that kids can go with, with you, though. So it's just for adults, and that's the 11 o'clock coming up this Tuesday. Okay, um, obviously, okay, so kind of look, look at the picture here. we got this broad international initiative to help with this uh, orphanage in Liberia and to fund these, these adoptions. But we also have more of a regional desire to be involved in the things, ministry to orphans in our area, which is through the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, and then locally through our Gwinnett um, Metro Baptist Association, which is the sponsor of the Pregnancy Resource Center. But also we want to continue to do things right here in our community. So it's kind of, a, kind of, a, kind of an upside-down triangle. Broad, regional, okay, local, in our community. So we will continue this year to do the things that we've been doing. We'll continue to do our Easter egg scramble that we do this year, which is acts of kindness to the community, just gifts to the community. Things that we do, just do for the community. And, and I think our biggest one is our Easter egg scramble, which has grown and gotten bigger and bigger each year. And so the first year, we started off with 100 very cold people on a morning with sub-freezing temperatures. And then the next year was 500 people. Last year, it was 600 people. And it's just something the community's gotten to know. So we're going to continue as a church to do things like that as well. But also, those, I would call those acts of kindness in the community. We'll also do acts of compassion in the community, which is to meet needs in the community. And so with our canned food drive, um, our backpack collection that we do for the students here at, uh, at Harbin's, uh, working through the school and through the counselors at the school to deal with needs. You guys aren't even aware that sometimes the counselor of the school will call me and say, hey, here's a specific need 
going on. Here's a family that needs prayer. Last year, a family's house burnt down. Here's a family that needs prayer, and can you collect this? I think that may have been two years ago. There's always needs, and the counselor knows that we're here, however they might need our help. So we'll continue to reach out through things like that as well here. And so let's continue to bring it down, though. Let's continue to bring it down from international down to um, more of a regional to our, our community, through the Pregnancy Resource Center, to our, I mean, to our um, locally, and then, then to our immediate community, which is through the things we do right here at Harbin's. And let's bring it all the way down, because the last part of James 1.27 is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so my challenge to every single person in this room is to be involved in personal discipleship, your own discipleship, by being involved in community groups, doing life together, but also looking for ways to be involved in the discipleship of your brothers and sisters and build these relationships in our church. And let's see ourselves grow closer together this year in 2010. I'm so excited about our community groups. I felt like they went very well last year, and I feel like we've gotten off to a good start this year. And if you're not involved in a community group on a weeknight or involved in a Bible study on Sunday morning, I really encourage you to get involved in that because that's where we grow in personal holiness so that we can keep ourselves unstained from the world. There's three C's to our mission statement that's on our website and that we started this church with. It's communion, which involves our worship and personal growth, our relationship with God. There's commission, which is our mission to go out and spread the joy of Christ to the world. And community simply means we're doing those things together. We're doing those things together. And that's why our mission statement, our vision statement is to be a church where generations converge to enjoy God and then go out and change the world. So uh, I hope you're excited about some of the things we're doing this year. I know that we are. We've been pumped up about it, and we're very excited about what that's going to mean for our church. Obviously, we're about to take a step into a building. We don't know exactly what that means. Are new people going to come? Um, you know, what's going to be, what's God going to do when we get in that facility? We just don't know. We just don't know. But we want to make sure that we're focused where he wants us to be focused, regardless of what happens with the building. So we're excited, and I hope you are as well. So I know, Mark, you got up there early, and I'm going to tell you, get back up there. Let's sing at least one song. I promised Deemer he would be in his Bible study class by 11.15. That only gives us 17 minutes. So here's what I'm telling everybody. Okay, please go to Deemer's class, all right? We, we just stack the chairs. Two or three of you help stack the chairs. Everyone else, get over to his class. Take your coffee with you. Take your donut with you. Take your cookie with you. Take your life song adoption information with you and go sit in Deemer's class by 11.15 so that he can get through Genesis 22, okay, that he's been in for a while now. He's got to get out of Genesis, guys. We've been at this for six months. All right, let's go. So, uh, so y'all go over to his class here in just a second. But Mark, why don't you take us out with at least one song uh, to close it? Why don't y'all stand? Holiness.